We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order, cashback guru, low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome to another Run It Back edition of the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Tuesday, April 28th. We're mixing it up again this week and getting away from an actual game uh, to instead rewatch an NBA draft telecast. We settled after much deliberation on the 2009 draft. That's the Hashim the Beat draft, the Steph Curry draft, the Austin Day draft, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it gave us plenty to talk about. We went through each pick of the first round, one through 30, some of the storylines around those picks, what was happening in the league at that time. Vince Carter had just been traded to the Magic. Shaq was just traded to the Cavs earlier that day. So there was a lot going on in and around the draft at this time. And this ended up being, in my opinion, I think our, our best and probably our most fun rewatch to date. Really enjoyed breaking this one down with Alex and James. But uh, I think that just about does it for my preamble. So let's get to it. In the hands of Waiters, three seconds left for three in the win. We are back with our fifth installment of the Run It Back series. Alex Barutha, James Anderson are on the line to discuss 
the 2009 NBA draft. Uh, we were able to dig up the full first round on YouTube, completely unabridged, commercials uh, redacted. It was it was actually a pretty solid stream uh, as far as I was concerned, but it was almost three hours long, so we didn't really feel like we needed to get into the second round. Um, but we'll, we'll touch on some of the guys maybe who made an impact in round two, but uh, guys, we discussed doing a number of different drafts. You know, we've done a couple of playoff games. We did the 2012 USA Spain gold medal game last week, wanted to mix it up. And we started looking at maybe narrowing it down to four or five drafts from the last 20, 25 years. What was it about this one to you guys that I think I think we can all say pretty clearly made it uh, the obvious final choice when we when we really started getting into the discussion? I think for me, it was just the um, horrificness of some of the lottery picks and just like the missed opportunities. Like it's it, it's very much. There's a few really good picks, and then if you didn't make one of those picks, your pick was pretty much terrible. And then the the David Kahn factor with Minnesota having four first-round picks and really uh, doing their best to minimize the impact of those four first-round picks. I would have to agree with that. You know, you have the the, the number one, or the guaranteed basically number one of Blake Griffin, but then things start kind of, things go off the rails pretty quickly with the beat at number two and... Um, like definitely varying opinions on guys like Harden and, you know, Rubio was a lot higher than I remember him being. Um, and, or at least, you know, experts were, were projecting him that way, stuff like that. Curry going seven. Um, I, I just think, yeah, it ended up being a, a very interesting draft. Yeah. I didn't realize until doing research for this podcast, how, how bad of a draft this was considered going in. You know, I, I read multiple, articles and I, I know you listened to a podcast on it Alex that compared this to the 2000 draft which was Kenyon Martin at number one and not much else after that and and in retrospect Kenyon Martin I think ended up being the best player from that class which says a lot I mean I think he was what two-time all-star but certainly not the type of player that you'd expect to be the best in a class and I, I think a lot of people saw Blake Griffin as this draft's version of Kenyon Martin and then pretty much everything below him um, you well you had some guys like Curry and Rubio and Harden who were considered guys who had all-star potential, there was really not anything in the way of a sure thing beyond Blake Griffin. Chad Ford said the eighth pick in this draft is the equivalent of the 18th pick in a normal draft. So just to give an idea of how bad people thought this was, and they trashed, I mean, the the podcast I listened to was an old BS report with Bill Simmons and Chad Ford, and they both absolutely trashed Drew Holiday and DeMar DeRozan for, you know, quote, doing nothing in college. Um, and even on the, even on the broadcast, they were like, these guys weren't that productive, you know, as, as, uh, you think they, you know, they, they were saying like, it was a lot of potential and stuff like that, but they were, uh, they were pretty hard on some of those guys who ended up being good. The, the fact that Jay Billis, like they had his running, um, best available thing, like they do for pretty much every draft. Uh, and like he had like the beat as his number two guy <laughs> and he had Jordan Hill ahead of Steph Curry. So there was a ton of talent in this draft, but I think uh, for the most part, like there were some people that thought Curry was going to be good. I don't remember very many people at all that thought Harden was going to be better mm -hmm. than just like a solid guy. Um, but for the most part, the analysis at the time of this draft was pretty horrendous. I mean, there, there was definitely that, vocal corner of the internet that thought that the B pick at two was bad, but it wasn't seen just kind of as this across the board. Everyone thought that was a terrible pick. Um, it's just, it's a lot easier to say in hindsight, it was a terrible pick, but 
the fact that like Jay Billis had him number two on his board is, right. is pretty telling. It seemed like a lot of people were really lukewarm on Thabit, but no one had the balls to actually rank him like 14th on their big board. Yeah, like when Billis was describing him after they took him with the number two pick, he really didn't have anything nice to say about him other than the fact he thought he was going to block shots. He had a he had a quote where he was just like, uh, I, I, I don't know about his offense, but I know he can block shots. And that's what you're saying about the number two overall pick. Uh, and a guy that you thought was the second best prospect in the draft, you don't know about his offense. Like that, that's um, pretty jarring. I thought it was interesting to compare it to the 2008 draft the year before, which was considered at the time really, really strong. You know, you had Derrick Rose coming off of a rookie of the year season and and obviously, you know, already ascending and a couple of years away from winning an MVP. Um, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Love were in that draft. OJ Mayo, of course, was in that draft. Eric Gordon. I think in retrospect, the 2009 draft ended up being better, right? I mean, I mentioned like Blake Griffin's the only sure thing going in, but as we stand now, 11 years removed, this draft has given us two surefire Hall of Famers in James Harden and Steph Curry, a, a guy in Blake Griffin who, had he not gotten hurt, was well on his way to the Hall of Fame, and a number of really, really good all-stars to borderline all-stars. Drew Holiday, Danny Green, DeMar DeRozan, Jeff Teague, Ty Lawson, um, you know, a lot of guys who were maybe good for a short period of time and, and kind of trailed off. But as is often the case with with a lot of these drafts, when you look at it, six months in advance and say, this is a great draft or this is a bad draft. It kind of ended up landing somewhere in the middle in the long run. I do think it was better than 2008. Um, just at least the top level talent in terms of win shares, it's, you know, Hargan, Curry, Griffin. And in 2008, it was Westbrook, DeAndre Jorgen, Kevin Love. So just kind of based off of that. I mean, how many drafts have there been where you're getting two top 30 players of all time? Like probably like a handful tops. So, yeah. So to set the scene a little bit heading into this draft, this is the second to last draft held at Madison Square Garden. So in 2010, it's also at MSG. Then it switches over to the Prudential Center in New Jersey for a couple of years while Barclays is being built. Uh, and that's, of course, where it's been housed ever since. Uh, the Lakers had just won the title over the Orlando Magic a couple of weeks earlier. LeBron just got his first MVP. Derrick Rose, like I said, looks awesome. He's the rookie of the year. The Clippers hold the number one pick. And coming in, there was a little bit of talk in the intro uh, to the telecast, which we should probably mention right away, very heavily featured the song My Time by Fabulous. And they were going with some sort of like puzzle theme to the entire draft, like a lot of graphics featured puzzle pieces. David Stern even mentioned uh, like very blatantly uh, finding a piece to a puzzle in his little opening soliloquy before the first pick. So a lot of puzzle themes and a lot of Fabulous in this draft. But we kind of get to the 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 minutes leading up to the number one pick and they're showing the Clippers draft room. It looks pretty bleak. Uh, they mentioned that the Clippers at this point had had two winning seasons in the last 30 years. And <laughs> I mean, knowing the Clippers, that's, that's not all that surprising. And, you know, I guess over the next decade, they have by far their best run of success in franchise history. But seeing that stat projected on the screen, two winning seasons in 30 years, even though in the back of my mind, I, I knew that was true. Like it was, it was still like a jarring graphic to see. Yeah, and I mean, they, I, it, it was obvious that Blake Griffin was going number one. I thought it was really funny. I listened to that Bill Simmons podcast, and he said, <laughs> he said, quote, no one in LA is excited about Blake Griffin. He's not selling tickets. Um, so that was a weird, weird thing to say. <laughs> who, who did he want? Yes, to he take? said, 
I don't know. No, he said he he thought they should take Griffin, but he just thought Griffin wasn't that exciting of a player. Like he wouldn't sell tickets. So that was weird. And obviously it was the exact opposite of what happened. But yeah, it's I mean, it seems impossible that a team just based on how the NBA works. If you're bad for long enough, you should just get enough good players through drafts. I mean, the, the amount of incompetence that has to be rampant throughout your entire organization to be that bad for 30 years straight is unbelievable. They also they also pointed out that this was their third uh, number one overall pick, and the previous two were Danny Manning and Michael Oluwakandi, <laughs> and they were they were weirdly uh, like instead of just saying yeah they haven't had much success, like they made it seem like Danny Manning with the first overall pick was like a big hit. Uh, he made two All Star teams. It's probably not what you want out of a first overall pick, um, but yeah, that that's definitely a. Pretty shaky track record with two previous number one overall picks. So there's not much to say about the Griffin pick. This was this was virtually a lock. They mentioned that, you know, some teams were working to trade up. Obviously, everyone in this draft liked Blake Griffin, but it didn't sound like L.A. was really all that interested in moving off the number one pick. Uh, one thing I found interesting was the the little factoid that they put up there for Blake Griffin is that his goal is to host SNL. And they said he records it on his DVR every week. He has not hosted SNL yet, but I, he's gotten pretty close. I know Simmons in his draft diary wrote, basically made fun of that goal and put the odds at 750,000 to one that Blake Griffin ever hosts SNL. And like, I mean, he's gotten pretty close. Not many athletes get to do it. It's basically A-listers only, right? Peyton Manning, LeBron. I don't know if any other NBA player in the last like 20 years has hosted it, but I think Griffin would be near the top of the list. Well, he missed his window now that he's playing in Detroit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that ship sailed, but. Uh, he definitely got closer than you might have thought. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get to the number two pick. Memphis takes Hashim Thabit. David Stern's voice during this pick, I think, was kind of a foreboding omen about how things were going to go. With the second pick in the 2009 NBA draft, the Memphis Grizzlies select Hashim Thabit from Dar es Salaam. Tanzania and the University of Connecticut. Yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, just like, like I said, I mean, it, just watching the draft in real time, nobody was really excited about him. Like, it, <laughs> he was the number two overall pick. Like, they weren't, like, bad-mouthing the pick, but nobody had much positive stuff to say about him other than just the fact that he could block shots um, and that he wasn't a terrible free-throw shooter, but... Uh, like Jeff, Jeff Van Gundy said after they made the pick that he thought the Grizzlies should blow up the entire roster, which included <laughs> yeah. Mike Conley and Marc Gasol, like young Mike Conley, young Marc Gasol. And Jeff Van Gundy was like, look, they're going to have to blow it all up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they have the number two pick. Like, how much more can you blow it up at that point? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been blown up, Jeff. Like they're, they're working yep. on, on building it back up. I know it was a different league back then, but the idea of taking what was clearly described by everybody as almost a pure shot blocker with the right. number two pick in the draft seems absolutely wild. Like a pure shot blocker doesn't even go, I mean, top 10 is, is a stretch. I mean, certain, you have to be like a freak athlete, like someone like Jackson Hayes, I thought was a surprise this year, but he's also a way more complete player and mm-hmm. a freak athlete compared to someone like the beat who is kind of just seven foot three and stuck in front of the rim. And there was probably a 
mistaken lack of confidence in the player Marcus All was going to be because he was coming off his first season, uh, but he played like almost 31 minutes a game, really efficient. Uh, I mean, it, it seemed somewhat promising to me on paper, uh, but they, for some reason, still felt they needed another center. Uh, that's just, yeah, that, that one is, that always gets brought up as like one of the worst draft picks of all time. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest busts of all time and, and rightfully so. I will say, I did not realize he averaged 4.2 blocks a game at UConn. So he was a legitimate shot blocker. Like that, that's a higher number than I would have expected. He was 13 and a half points, 10.8 rebounds, 4.2 blocks. And for being a, a quote unquote, good free throw shooter, he was at 63% as a junior at UConn. So uh, I, again, I mean, it, it's puzzling in retrospect that you would take somebody with this profile as high as they did. Um, but as has been the theme with a lot of these games, you know, that we've looked back on, there's a ton of talk, whether it's the beat or some of the other big guys that go in round one, there's just a lot of this rhetoric of big guys and how are you going to stop other big guys or low block scoring and low post defense. And th- those things are still important in today's game. But back in 2009, like that was still the mindset that every team was in is you had to have, you had to have like really, really strong big guys and preferably a power forward and a center, you know, that can, that can either do one thing really well or, or play both ways. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like a, like a more modern equivalent of, to beat someone that went that high i like mo bamba kind of comes to mind as someone who was probably drafted too high off of like a shot blocking yeah. standpoint even though his physicals weren't great but he also had i mean he people also figured he could shoot the three a little bit and he's been fine from there but right I, I think and, he the, was, and he was a he was a freshman though too right he, mo bamba was 18 the beat was 22 when he debuted right. <laughs> yeah it's, i mean it, it's really hard to it's really hard to find any sort of way of <laughs> Of giving them right. any kind of benefit of the doubt on that. Um, didn't was, am I making this up, or was there something in the telecast where someone like intimated that David Kahn like wanted the beat, um, and like the fact that they were picking fifth, he kind of knew he wasn't going to get the beat or something. Like, am I making that up? Well, um, th- I think this that was a quote that I sent you in our chat yesterday oh, okay. that I that I dug up. I'll, I'll read it real quickly. This is from. Then Wolves GM David Kahn, when asked about uh, Hashim Thabit, who you can tell you can tell by the quote he's kind of talking around it because I don't think he's allowed to specifically mention Thabit at the time. Uh, but he said, "quote You could say that would complete our front line if we had somebody of that size and rim protecting capability. You could actually make an argument, and I'm not making that for me right now, but somebody could make the argument that he would be the perfect fit. So Minnesota <laughs> wanted to be." To a front line that had Al Jefferson and Kevin Love, like <laughs> I mean, I'm I, not saying like neither of those guys are great shot blockers, but just the the idea of having those two guys on the roster and thinking that a defense only center was the missing piece is, is hilarious. Speaking of David Kahn, they threw up a graphic at some point during the draft about his kind of career where he had started his career trajectory. Yeah. It was. Absolutely shocking. I had, to, I had to read this multiple times to make sure this was right. He went from a NBA sports writer at the Portland Oregonian to the GM of the Indiana Pacers in six years. It took him six years to go from a sports writer to a general manager of an NBA franchise, which was insane. I, I can't even, I mean, 
Does that ever happen before? I know on the I know on the I BS report, so. Bill Simmons Bill Simmons was joking that he has more credentials than David Kahn. And I, th- and I thought he was just kind of joking around and being like, oh, you know, Bill Simmons is just messing around. But I'm actually not so sure anymore. I thought it was a joke. What What do you think is the more egregious offense that Minnesota desperately wanted to trade up to get Hashim to beat, or that Memphis wouldn't trade the pick because they wanted Hashim to beat? <laughs> I think not trading the pick. I think just because like everybody seems so lukewarm about drafting him number two that it, yeah. it seems like if someone wants him that badly that you would just kind of hand it over and be like, listen, man, that's this is your this is your ordeal now. I mean, at the end of the day, they didn't give enough to move up. So I think just the, the team that took him, that's the worst offense, right? Because they, they're, mm-hmm. they're the team that actually used their assets to take him like the mm-hmm. Timberwolves were unwilling to give whatever high price it was to, to move up. And they still had an opportunity to crush those, the fifth pick and the sixth pick and they failed. Right. So obviously Memphis deserves to be killed for this pick, but they were, they were able to work a pretty nice trade later on draft night. And this breaks towards the end of the first round. They, they trade Darko Milicic to the Knicks for Quentin Richardson. And then a few weeks later, turn around and flip Quentin Richardson to the Clippers straight up for Zach Randolph which, of course, ends up being a really, really nice trade for them for the next, what, seven or eight years. That's incredible. That's uh, that's some high-level GM stuff. I mean, A lot of it was <laughs> contracts, though. Like, the Knicks, the Knicks were getting rid of Quentin Richardson so they could clear cap space to sign LeBron, which, of course, right. did not happen. And the Clippers, Zach Randolph at the time was, you know, close to, like, peak head case and was being paid a ton. So it was kind of sure. a salary dump that ended up working out really well for Memphis. Shout, shouts to Steve Nash for getting Quentin Richardson a big enough contract that he had to be salary dumped <laughs> later on. <laughs> I appreciated seeing a LeBron James Knicks jersey in the crowd. Nice. Oh, yeah. We had a fan. I, I tweeted out the, the photo yesterday as I was doing the rewatch last night. Some fan had a sign that said, LeBron plus Hill equals 2010 champions. <laughs> 2011 champions, I guess, because they, they would have had to wait another year. So... Somebody came to the arena anticipating that the Knicks would draft Jordan Hill and still believing that he would team with LeBron to bring a title to the Knicks. Well, or they just brought a bunch of paperboard and markers and made the sign. I mean, maybe, maybe. I don't. I don't. I guess maybe these are different times back then, but I don't think you could bring in like a bunch like blank pieces of paper and markers into the NBA draft in 2020. <laughs> so with the beat and Blake Griffin off the board, OKC goes James Harden. At number three, what a pick in retrospect, because this was not a consensus pick by any means. And in some ways, it kind of reminded me of the Westbrook pick a year earlier where, you know, I, I think Westbrook was probably a little bit more of an unproven commodity, having played one year at UCLA, came off the bench for a lot of that year, really didn't have much in terms of statistics to point to. But they took a risk on him at number four and it obviously panned out. And James Harden had played two years at Arizona State, was a first team All-American. So he had more of a resume at the college level, but definitely not a guy that uh, I think anybody, you know, at the time or anybody on the telecast certainly thought would develop into this perennial all-star, no doubt, or Hall of Famer. I have like three really funny things I noticed surrounding the Harden pick. Um, the the first one is that before the pick, uh, Mark Jackson said he wanted the Thunder to take Ricky Rubio so that they could, quote-unquote, move Westbrook off the ball. Um, he also, or Stu Scott, uh, 
said about James Harden. Not a lot of people know about him. Like we're talking like third pick in the draft, played in college multiple years. Not not a lot of people know about him. And then obviously the the best one was the graphic that just has the James Harden must improve, and then the what he must improve was mid range jumper. Have to have to have to have a mid range jumper to succeed in the NBA. Someone also called his game old school, uh, which I thought was just wild considering he ended up like ushering in this like new era of, you know, step back three pointers and, and everything like that. There's also a light debate about whether he should keep the beard, uh, which obviously in hindsight seems crazy. But I don't know. Like I was listening to the, the Simmons podcast. They were Simmons and Ford were both losing their minds over like how good uh, Sam Presti was as a GM. I mean, it was clear they both thought he was like infallible and knew exactly what he was doing. And I think that was the sentiment about the around mm-hmm. the league. And at this point, it's kind of a meme. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think even though it was kind of a surprising pick, a lot of people f- just figured, well, you know, if, if Presti drafted him, then he's, he probably knows something. And that was interesting that you uh, that, you know, I think James, you said it was Mark Jackson who yeah. thought they should draft Rubio to move Westbrook off the ball. Bill Simmons said the exact same thing. Um, I, like, I just don't like what, what, what part of Westbrook's game did people think needed to be off the ball? <laughs> like he's one of the worst off ball players to yeah. like, make an all-star team in my lifetime. Like he just people. cannot play off the ball at all. Hey, well, in I his defense, people, he was coming off of a rookie year in which he shot 27% from three. I think people literally thought he was a slashing shooting guard. Like, it's <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. I'm trying to see who else OKC had at the time. Like, I mean, I guess maybe you're drafting Harden to be your point guard, but I mean, at the time it was like Earl Watson was the other point guard on the roster. So I don't know if you're moving Westbrook to make room for 30 year old Earl Watson. Also, just thinking of like the the basketball fit of Ricky Rubio and Russell Westbrook, and then also the like personality fit between those two, like it would have just been, uh, <laughs> it would have just been catastrophic. <laughs> but with the the Sam Presti thing, uh, I mean, I know like it's he's made some like some bad moves since then, but I do think like the the Durant Westbrook Harden run of back-to-back-to-back MVPs with your first-round pick is probably never going to get topped. No, and acquiring Serge Ibaka during that time as well. They they were technically the team that drafted Eric Bledsoe and ended up trading him. I mean, Presti had an incredible run from the Durant pick basically through the middle of the next decade. The final thing I have on on Harden James, this kind of goes hand-in-hand with the uh, must-improve mid-range jumper graphic, which was in contention for graphic of the night, uh, Jay Bill has had a quote uh, when describing Harden's game. This is when they're rolling his his Arizona State tape, and he's just like abusing these poor point guards from Oregon. We, we had a Tuan Porter appearance and some highlights. Uh, Bill has said, quote, Harden is a decent shooter, but he's a little bit limited. I think he'll need to improve his pull-up game. And, and his James ball Harden's handling, he said. Shoot off the dribble? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so we moved to number four. Blake Griffin, the beat. Harden, go one, two, three. Tyreek Evans goes four to Sacramento. I forgot to take a screenshot of the graphic, but they, after every single pick, they they kind of did a quick, uh, like top seven or eight, what that team's roster looks like. The Kings graphic was horrific. Like it should have been preceded by like a, you know, a warning for mature audiences. Like it was, 
horrible. They're coming off a season in which they won 17 games. They went 17 and 65. I mean, when, when we're looking at the, the minutes leaders for this team, it's Kevin Martin, John Salmons, Brad Miller, Bano Udra, Andres Nocioni, and Francisco Garcia. All those guys averaged at least 30 <laughs> minutes per game. So Sacramento is in need of help at every single position. The Tyreek Evans pick, in retrospect, I don't, I, you know, it's, it's kind of a blah pick. You know, obviously they should have taken Steph Curry, who goes a few picks later. I, I kind of want to defend this pick. There's only five players in NBA history who averaged 25 and five as a rookie, and Tyreek Evans is among them. The other four are LeBron, Luca, Oscar Robertson, and Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean the pick was pretty chalky. I mean, no one really had anything that bad to say about about Tyreek Evans. I mean, I think some people are concerned because he made the switch to point guard so late. Um, you know, I know Chad Ford said he doesn't think Tyreek Evans can play a minute of point guard in the NBA, which is a pretty extreme statement, but I think I'm being closer to right than most people. Well, <laughs> well, um, but there was a, a contrasting opinion on the ESPN telecast. Uh, Stu Scott said, there are a lot of point guards in this draft, and there is a lot of reason to believe that Tyreek Evans will be the best of all these point guards in three years. <laughs> He proceeded to list no reasons for that. <laughs> Look, there are a lot of reasons why it might be the best. I'm not going to tell you what they are, but they are out there. It was, I think it was, it was just kind of, I don't know, They a lot of talk about like his athleticism or at least his length, you know, mm-hmm. kind of being that 6'5 point guard with long arms, um, everything like that, who's kind of a scorer. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, they kind of danced around the fact that he's not like a real point guard or wasn't like a, you know, a great passer or anything like that. But they just, you, I guess they thought was he was someone who should, who would just <laughs> kind of needs the ball and shown competence at that point guard. Do you guys think there are similarities between him and R.J. Barrett? Um, like from, <laughs> like if, if you had just R.J. Barrett's raw stats uh, mm-hmm. and then you kind of eliminate and you took it back to 2009 and there wasn't a John Morant, like R.J. Barrett probably wins rookie of the year if you just take zion and rj out of the equation and move it back to 2009 just because of the points rebounds assist right like i mean i feel like they're both just sort of small forwards that were asked to play primary ball handler um based on the the spot in the draft their teams took them i think that's a great call and obviously barrett struggled this year but i i would not have been surprised and that's reflected in our preseason projections which i worked on I thought he would be at least a 15, five and five guy. And certainly that was not the case, but I think the big differentiator is that Tyreek Evans shot 46% from the field his rookie year, which is awesome. And he was a fantastic finisher, uh, but like RJ Barrett, not a three point shooter whatsoever. He was 25% from three as a rookie, a much better free throw shooter as well. That's kind of the thing with Barrett is like him being like an ungodly bad, you know, white side level free throw shooter as a guy who's playing point guard is, is pretty much unacceptable. Whereas Tyreek Evans has kind of always been in that 75 to 80 range. Yeah. I mean, if RJ Barrett shot, you know, 80 to 85% from the free throw line, we'd probably be having an, an entirely different conversation about his rookie year. That way I got a few points per game, everything like that, you know, teams will got to treat him differently, but I do like that cop because they, you're right in that they're both kind of these small forward wing players who end up on the ball because they can't really shoot. And their ball, you know, their ball handling and passing is competent. It's, you know, it's at a level that's good enough to play point guard. And ultimately, that just makes the most sense for the usually the um, construction of the team. All right. 
the number five pick, we've officially reached the point in the draft when when David Kahn enters sicko mode, and Minnesota has back-to-back <laughs> picks at five and six. They get the fifth pick from Washington two days before the draft in exchange for Randy Foy and Mike Miller. I was able to dig up a article on that trade in which Bleacher Report gave the Wizards an A++ for this deal. Again, they acquired Randy Foy and Mike Miller for the number five pick in the draft, and I, I think the general consensus was that Ricky Rubio, who, based on how they're talking about him on this telecast, uh, you know, is like a, a prodigy of all prodigies. And, and you know, we're, this wasn't that long ago. Like, I, I remember this. I was going into my senior year of high school. James, I, I think you were in college at this point. Alex, you're, you know, in high school at some level. Like, we all remember this happening. I, I guess I don't remember thinking Rubio was like this, this level of a prodigy. You know, he's so young at this point. He'd, he'd just come off playing in the Olympics at age 17 for team Spain, you know, in the gold medal game against, against team USA, he's 18 at this point, but I mean, they're talking about him. They, they run a comparison to Pete Maravich. And the more you read and the more you listen to things about this draft, like he, I guess he was just considered like a little bit more of a sure thing or had higher upside than I remembered. I mean, the video, like the highlight reels of Rubio, uh, like the passing, like the no look passing, the like all the just fancy stuff. I mean, it all looks amazing. Uh, but then, I, I just think there was a. I mean, he got drafted into a terrible situation. He didn't really want to come over. Like he didn't want to really play for the Timberwolves. He, um, I mean, I think if you if you redid his career, I like I think there's a chance things work out better. He probably was never going to be a good enough shooter to really be like an all-star level player, especially as the game kind of evolved. But I mean, I think there's, there's a scenario where he's kind of a Jason Kidd type of guy. Um, but I, I just think he had a lot working against him with this landing spot and just taking that time, extra time before coming over and just having a bunch of different coaches and probably, um, sort of having his role constantly in flux. I mean, it, it definitely wasn't a great landing spot, but um, yeah, I, I mean, when you just look at his his baby face, like in the green room, it's really, it's really tough to talk yourself into fifth overall pick in the NBA. Um, but I mean, I think there, I think it was kind of like a worst case outcome of his career. I think that gold medal game did a lot to, to raise his stock considering he was 17. He also got halfway, he, he got hurt halfway through that game and ended up playing the second half left-handed. Uh, so I think that really like boosted things. And, you know, I, I, I don't exactly like you alluded to Nick, don't remember him being this kind of prodigy, but now kind of going back, it's, I don't know if this is the, a perfect comparison, but it kind of reminds me of like a lot the Lonzo Ball pick where people figure, well, this guy, he's such a yeah. good passer and he's a good defender. He really can't miss. You're not he's not going to bust because he's going to keep his teammates happy. He's going to push the ball in transition, everything like that. But you're unsure about his scoring ability, about his physicals. So I think in hindsight, that's that's kind of maybe how, how, how we should view uh, the Rubio pick. I mean, I, I've compared. Lamelo Ball, like I, I think, like Lamelo Ball's like floor is kind of like Ricky Rubio. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the I think that's an awesome call just based on how people were talking about Lonzo pre-draft. Like, I mean, I 
I had a horrible track record in that draft, uh, loving Josh Jackson and everything. But I also thought like the talk of Lonzo Ball just being a, a surefire top three guy was kind of weird. And then when the Lakers had the number two pick, it was kind of a lock that he was going there. But uh, I think that's a great call just based on like the pre-draft hype and the expectations being a little out of control. And honestly, I mean, so far, Lonzo Ball's career is tracking pretty similarly to Rubio's. You know, I, I don't think Lonzo Ball's on a trajectory to be dramatically better than peak Ricky Rubio. I think they both dealt with injuries. They've both been in bad situations to begin their career. Uh, I think that's a great call by you, Alex. Uh, also, no mention on the telecast of Rubio not coming over right away. I, I think maybe like late in the first round, they, they go to Chad Ford and he mentioned something about it, but he didn't come over for two more years. You know, he's drafted uh, in 2000 and 2009. It doesn't debut until 2011. And they're not talking about that at all. I mean, they, they go right into discussing like how he fits with this roster. And, you know, maybe that was just something they didn't want to broach on the telecast to make Minnesota look bad, but uh, kind of an underrated part, I guess, of this pick. And maybe Minnesota knew that. And that's part of why they they end up taking Johnny Flynn with the next pick. But uh, just kind of bizarre. And, and you can tell Ricky Rubio, not exactly thrilled to be landing in Minnesota. You know, he, he gives a little bit of a smile, um, pretty quiet in his on-camera interview after the pick. I also love Jay Billis saying that he looks like a tennis player. <laughs> do, do, do you guys remember Fran Pachilla's comp on him? Uh, Wayne Gretzky? Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. Wayne, Wayne, so, Wayne Gretzky comp. <laughs> we comp yeah, he looks like a tennis player and he reminds me of a hockey player. <laughs> All right, so at number six, Minnesota picks again. Uh, worth noting that they tied the record for most first-round picks held by one team. They have 5, 6, 18, and 28 in this draft. And, of course, they end up trading 18, which is Ty Lawson. We'll get to that later. Uh, but at number six, they double down, go another point guard, back-to-back picks. Here we go. Crowd loves the pick because, one, Stephen Curry is still on the board. New York is two picks away, hoping to get Steph Curry at number eight. And Johnny Flynn is from Syracuse, or he's from New York. He played at Syracuse, so kind of a double popular pick in the house. ESPN immediately starts talking about how Johnny Flynn will fit alongside Ricky Rubio, which is great because those two never ended up playing a single game together. Uh, and pretty much all of the positive things that the analysts have to say about Johnny Flynn are about his maturity and his demeanor. I mean, I at least Jay Billis said before the pick that they should take Steph with the pick. Um, like that, like he was wrong about where he had Steph on his big board. Like he had Jordan Hill ahead of him, but at least he does say before the pick they should take him at six. But yeah, like the Johnny Flynn analysis reminded me a ton of the Hashim Thabit analysis, where nobody thought it was crazy that those guys got taken where they got taken, but nobody had good stuff to say about them that would equate to being taken where they were taken. So I, I feel like everyone kind of had all of the information. They just didn't know how to take that information and properly value these guys. Were you guys as big into Johnny Flynn as a college player as I was? Like I was irrationally way high on him, like kind of kind of a Salim Stoudemire, AC Law type of situation where like the evidence suggested he wasn't going to be that good. But I was like dying for the Bucks to get him at 10 if he slipped. I remember at least the hype. I remember Bucks fans wanting him. Um, but I didn't really watch college basketball then. I was just, okay. you know, so I didn't, I didn't know. I, I watched the that six overtime game and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I didn't really have any. Like there wasn't I, the one the players that I liked outside of the, um, 
really at, like in that middle of the lottery. I, like I like DeMar DeRozan and I like Brandon Jennings, um, but I I didn't really have any opinion on Flynn. I mean, do do you think that six overtime game like really like maybe jumped his stock? You know, a few rounds or not a few rounds, I, a few picks. I I do. Like I I think this was still in the era where like being having a memorable like college career or something, at least from like the media's standpoint, was a big deal. Like I, I think uh, James Harden, a lot of the re- like people that were sort of lower on him didn't really like him because he didn't ball out in the tourney and like he, he kind of played poorly in the tourney and didn't look that interested. So people like held that against him. Whereas like Johnny Flynn, everyone is like, Oh yeah, I watched that game. Like I, I, you know, I don't know how much it moved him up like NBA draft boards, but I, I still think it, I mean, he, he just did not have much that screamed lottery pick on paper. He played 67 yeah. minutes in that game, by the way. That's crazy. But I think even if it didn't necessarily move him up draft boards directly, I think if you're a, you know, if you're a GM and you're not sure between a couple of players, you maybe just take the one that you know fans will like. And if you're 100% sure fans will be really happy with you getting Johnny Flynn, then maybe that kind of sways your decision. Yeah, for sure. Last thing on Johnny Flynn. Johnny Flynn, 6'1", 196 pounds. He says he hasn't grown since 8th grade after a basketball accident where he broke an ankle bone on a growth plate. How is this not a bigger deal? How is this not a red flag? You just casually mentioned that he injured his growth plate and just stopped growing and lo and behold has major injury concerns a couple of years later. Like, I'm not a doctor. I need to make that clear. How does injuring the growth plate in one of your ankles just mean you stop growing altogether at a certain point? So I, I really enjoyed when they used, so they, they mention it and they also have a graphic up on the screen when he's doing his interview that explains Johnny Flynn hasn't grown since eighth grade due to breaking a growth plate in his ankle, except the growth plate part is in quotations. So do they not believe him? Do they think he's lying? Do they not understand what's going on? Like it was like he, he injured a growth plate. Like, yeah, sure. Whatever you say, Johnny. I don't know where NBA medicals were at this point, but it seems like it should have been a bigger red flag, certainly. Here's the commissioner. With the seventh pick in the 2009 NBA draft, the Golden State Warriors select Stephen Curry from Davidson College. So we moved to number seven. The Golden State Warriors get the pick of the draft. Stephen Curry out of Davidson. Fans are beside themselves. Uh, I think there's a lot of love for Steph Curry, the player. So w- when they make this pick, it's a mixture of like excitement and dismay as the Knicks realize that they're probably getting Jordan Hill and not Stephen Curry. James, you pointed this out a couple of days ago when, when you watched this a little bit before I did. Dickie V comes away from this telecast looking pretty good. Here's Dickie V's opinion on the Stephen Curry pick. I will tell you this as well. Those teams that didn't take Curry, they're going to eat their heart out. Curry is going to be a star. How much of a star? He's going to be the rookie of the year in the NBA. Charisma, shoot it. He have double teams, triple teams to face. This kid, they're going to regret they didn't take him down there at number three when they didn't take the kid. Oklahoma City, this kid is going to be a star big time. Nelson got a great one. 
I mean, it was, <laughs> I remember even back then uh, being pretty dubious of Dick Vitale's uh, basketball insight and analysis, especially with regards to NBA projection. So, I mean, if Dickie, like, it, it's just so crazy. Like, that Dickie V comes away from this looking like a genius, and Jay Billis comes away from this looking like an idiot, like, with his draft board. Um, really good moment for Dickie V. Maybe, maybe one of his last great moments. Yeah, I, I thought he, uh, they didn't use him nearly enough. You know, he, he comes yeah, in, yeah. He, com- he comes in for a couple, like, incredible cameos throughout the draft, but I would have liked to see his opinion on, on more of these picks. He's very, uh, very heavy on the college production and the, you know, kind of prove it at the college level, as you might imagine, uh, over these, you know, fancy one and done guys. But an incredible moment for Dickie V. I, I did not realize this. I thought Mike D'Antoni was still in Phoenix at this time, and he, he had already been coaching the Knicks. So I, I think part of the reason that, you know, Knicks fans, other than just the excitement that was Stephen Curry, you know, he was coming off of a, another electric NCAA tournament. You know, most of the highlights that they show are him just like torching that uh, Joe Krabenhoff Wisconsin team. But I think he would have been such a perfect fit for D'Antoni's system in New York that it was kind of a, a double whammy for the Knicks fans. You know, not only are you not getting the exciting player, but on paper, at least he would have fit so well in that system. This was uh, this was from the BS podcast, but I enjoyed uh, Bill Simmons saying that uh, he Curry reminds him of Mike Bibby, someone who can make twenty two footers in traffic. That's what uh, you want. So that was, yeah. <laughs> well, that, there's been there's been a lot of revisionist history about how high people were on Curry, like before this draft. Um, I think there were definitely people that would have said. Yes, Curry over Johnny Flynn, but there were not many people saying like Curry should be going much higher than like five or six, really, other than Dickie B. I was trying to go back and look at some previous drafts. Was there a comparison for someone like Curry who absolutely lit it up at a small school? You know, if if you look back at the last few drafts, it's a lot of blue chippers you know a lot of duke north carolina texas washington yukon villanova you, you don't see even these one-offs from small conferences like I, I kind of maybe adam morrison but but certainly gonzaga even at that point was on a higher level than davidson yeah i mean i think there was the small school thing the not a freshman thing uh physically i mean i i remember seeing him physically as like a freshman and he just he did not have even close to an NBA body. I mean, he's still undersized by NBA superstar standards, but he's definitely bulked up uh, since he was in college. And so I think, I think there were a lot of just valid reasons why he wouldn't have been talked about as a top two or top three pick in 2009. I think nowadays he he probably gets treated sort of like a, a Trey Young caliber uh, prospect just because of the shooting and everything. But back then, I mean, it, it was not crazy at all that he fell outside the top five. So at number eight, Jordan Hill falls into the lap of the New York Knicks. Uh, <laughs> Jordan Hill, 0.0 career value over replacement, which is perfect. That, that could be a negative number. So he, he just never contributed negatively or positively in the NBA. To his credit, three years at Arizona, um, was really, really productive as a junior. 18 and 11, 
first cat in 30 years, James, to average a double-double. So the production was there. And you know, even though we're we're kind of creeping toward the modern NBA draft philosophies, like it, it wasn't crazy to take a junior at number eight. I mean, Curry was was a junior. Um, you know, Johnny Flynn was a sophomore. Harden was a sophomore. The beat was a junior. Like we, we you know, even Blake Griffin was not a freshman either. Like it, there wasn't necessarily this mandate that you had to go young. So taking a junior at number eight wasn't crazy. But he's another player in this top ten who ends up playing less than two years for the team that drafted him. He only made it 24 games with the Knicks before they traded him to Houston for Tracy McGrady in what was another salary dump to get LeBron the next summer. There wasn't another, it's a bad pick for sure. Uh, but like who, who was the obvious guy to take there over him at the time? I mean, it, I think like I, I would probably take DeRozan over him, but um I mean, it did it did sort of seem like a chalky pick by the Knicks, even though he had a very forgettable career. Yeah, and in retrospect, was this a seven-player draft? There would have probably been people that wouldn't have had Johnny Flynn as part of the X-player draft. That, mm-hmm. like, I think um, there might have been some debate about whether he qualified. But yeah, I, I do think everyone kind of, once Curry went, there was a perceived drop-off there. So at number nine, Toronto goes DeMar DeRozan. Don't have a lot to say about this pick. It was pretty lukewarm. You know, DeRozan at the time was was coming off of uh, an okay year at USC, but I don't think he was quite as good as people thought. I mean, he was a massive big-time recruit at the high school level, you know, one of the all-time high school mixtapes, and didn't necessarily translate that to USC. He was a little bit inconsistent. So this was viewed as kind of a risky pick by Toronto at number nine. Uh, Love the pronunciation from David Stern, Dumar DeRozan. And the only other note I have on him is that they, they mentioned that he dunked in sixth grade, which knowing DeMar DeRozan is not surprising at all. No, I mean, this, yeah, the, there wasn't much of a reaction about this pick, but it, it kind of reminds me of when you mentioned that he had this insane high school mixtape and then just kind of floundered in college a little bit or just was like extremely underwhelming. Reminds me a lot of Andrew Wiggins, a player type also, kind of this wing who is supposed to dribble and is athletic. The shooting's kind of questionable, um, but yeah, there wasn't there wasn't really they didn't have too much to say about this pick. No, I don't, I don't even really have anything in my notes. Um, I mean, it's it's one of the best picks of the first round. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's not kind of damning with faint praise, but yeah, I mean, he he had a heck of a career for a, a number nine overall pick. I mean, as of now, is he the fourth best player in the draft? Curry, Harden, Blake, and then then you're choosing between like DeRozan, Drew Holiday, Jeff Teague, Ty I would, Lawson. I would say I would say Holiday just because I think he his peak was quite a bit better than DeRozan's peak in terms of winning basketball games. But I think DeRozan probably is going to look better in terms of career stats and everything. Mm-hmm. So this brings us to number ten. Milwaukee takes Brandon Jennings. One of my all-time favorite players, uh, I, I think pretty much everybody around our age loved Brandon Jennings at the time, ended up having a pretty awesome rookie year, uh, had the 55-point game early on. Um, but like DeRozan, a, a pretty risky pick. And the further away you get from number one, inherently the less risky these picks become. But Brandon Jennings wasn't even in the green room. He was invited, and his agent advised him not to go because of the, at the time, distinct possibility that he fell. And this kind of turned into a Brady Quinn, Aaron Rodgers Richard Lewis situation. 
Um, so he's he's in New York City. He's close enough that four picks later, uh, he's able to to come out on stage right after David Stern announces the Earl Clark pick to Phoenix at 14. Uh, so he's in the area, like ready to pounce. But uh, he's the first of our draftees who who's not there. So David Stern announces the pick, says Brandon Jennings isn't there. At the time, we don't really know that he's going to come and and you know be on stage, shake Stern's hand, get his hat. But you know, a guy who was by some uh, scouting services at the time, the number one player in that high school class. James, do you have any insight as to why he actually didn't go to Arizona? I think there were some eligibility issues, maybe. Yes, I, um, I believe so. I, that, it, it's always pitched as him, you know, wanting to be a trailblazer right, and better right. himself in Europe. I, I think he would have gone to Arizona if he could have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he was definitely an Arizona type of guy, um, but he. <laughs> You know, he he seemed he had a he had some pretty good moments in this draft. I, I mean, I remember this draft for a lot of reasons, but I always will remember him coming out and <laughs> insisting on having his moment with David Stern like a few picks later. Um, I thought it was so he shot thirty seven point four percent from three and thirty seven percent from two as a rookie. Uh, so better from three than from two as a rookie. But Jay Billis said. Brandon Jennings' jump shot is broken, uh, full stop. Like during during the draft coverage, I thought that was funny. Yeah, they called him a they called him a freak athlete with a broken jumper, which is probably <laughs> yeah, the inverse yeah. the yeah. inverse yeah. of what he ended up being. But at the time, at the time, I also remember watching mixtapes of him where he's throwing down windmill dunks in his high school. His tape was insane. Yeah, he it did seem like he lost ten inches on his vertical as soon as he got to the NBA. Yeah, his, it, his athleticism probably peaked as like a 16-year-old. Yeah, I also I also think it's probably a bad sign when someone's like default jump shot is the fadeaway. Like it, you know what I mean? Like no one's getting drafted anymore who like if wide open will still shoot the fadeaway. Right. One thing I do admire about him though is he. You watch those mixtapes. He basically played the exact same way in the NBA that he did as a junior at Oak Hill. You know, like the, the jumper never really changed. He was always kind of reckless. I, I, his career shooting percentages never really improved. Like, even though it ended up landing him out of the league, and, and part of that was the torn Achilles in Detroit, but he never really changed who he was. And in some ways, I did kind of appreciate that. I mean, the you know, there are certain player comps that can be really damning. I think Allen Iverson is one of them. Because yeah. to, yeah. to play like Allen Iverson... You have to be, you cannot be, if you're 10% or 15% worse than Allen Iverson, you play like him. That's a pretty good way to get Boogadog of the league or lose your role extremely quick. And, but at the same time, I mean, with the number 10 pick, I I think taking Brandon Jennings, I, I think in hindsight, the pick looks fine, honestly. Well, and if they had done, if you'd probably done a redraft of this draft after everyone's rookie season, he might have gone higher than 10. Yeah, I mean, he was third in rookie of the year voting behind Evans and Curry. And he was a, a consensus three. I mean, those guys had really good rookie years and and Evans kind of ran away with it. But but yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, he clearly was better than Johnny Flynn right away. Rubio, still an incomplete at that point, clearly was better than Hashim Thabit. So even though he ended up kind of being a longer term bust, I, like you said, James, I think in the short term, he probably goes four or five picks higher. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of, you know, we're Bucks fans at the time, like, so it's it's sort of, 
we don't regret it at all. But it it was kind of a shame that Brandon Jennings didn't get to have his rookie season as a member of the Knicks. Like I think that would have been mm-hmm. pretty fun, especially with Mike D'Antoni there. I mean, the Jordan Hill pick is just so blah. You know, it's just like okay, well, here's a rebounding power forward. Um, whereas Brandon Jennings at least would have been fun. All right. So at number eleven, the New Jersey Nets take Terrence Williams out of Louisville, the first senior off the board in this draft. Uh, the, the biggest takeaway for me with this pick was he said he doesn't watch ESPN, and Stuart Scott took that very personally. Yeah, I, in, in my in my notes, I have Stu Scott seemed to be salty over T. Will saying he doesn't watch ESPN. <laughs> he brought it up like three times in a, in a one minute span. Well, maybe now you watch ESPN, you idiot. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this, this, uh, based on a Bleacher Report draft grade article, this pick got an A plus, which I, I don't necessarily hate because Terrence Williams, it feels like everything about him. I've heard there were some, maybe some character concerns, uh, that came to light in the NBA, but as a prospect, there was a lot to like about Terrence Williams, kind of a ahead of his time guy who at that size could kind of do it all. Maybe he didn't do anything all that well, but handled the ball, could shoot it a little bit, had a great athleticism. I, I don't think this was necessarily the wrong pick at 11. No, I, I mean, I was higher on him than I should have been uh, uh, in retrospect. And everyone was higher on him than they should have been. But yeah, I don't I don't remember this being a, a bad pick at the time. Is it kind of like a precursor to uh, Evan Turner? <laughs> well, he can go I, number two overall. Right. And I, I think Turner was quite a bit more limited athletically. I mean, he was more polished, but at least with Terrence Williams, you could kind of talk yourself into him having the potential to be better than the type of player you normally get at 11. Sure. I think the guy at 12, maybe not, maybe not a similar player comp in terms of what he did uh, to Evan Turner, but like low upside, great college player. Uh, Gerald Henderson goes 12 to Charlotte and a really, really depressing intro to this pick by the ESPN crew, just like listing off the 10 most horrific stats they can find about the Charlotte Bobcats who averaged 93.6 points per game. The previous season. Uh, I also love that right before the pick, Jay Billis mentions that he thinks they could go Dewan Blair here, who ended up going 25 picks later at number 37. <laughs> well, um, so the they were also saying like they're set at point guard. They've they've got Ray Felton, so they're set at point guard. Like, like that was like their justification for. I mean, at this point, the best players on the board are all point guards. Um, but they had Ray Felton, so you can't really take one. My only like memory of Gerald Henderson in the NBA is the dunk he had during a Lakers game. I can't remember if it was over Dwight Howard when Dwight Howard was on the Lakers. But I mean, his athleticism was absolutely nuts. But obviously, he never ended up being more than uh, uh, you know a slashing shooting guard like uh, Russell Westbrook was supposed to be. Yeah, they they said in the draft like he's the best athlete in this draft. Like one of them said that and like, I just don't, maybe it was just because his athleticism was only utilized in like dunks. Like he, he didn't yeah. use his athleticism to like impact the game in any other way other than just mm-hmm. dunking. But I mean, they, like how, how are you going to say someone's a better athlete than Blake Griffin in a draft? Right. Well, he, he had kind of like uh Jason Richardson athleticism where I don't, I don't think of Jason Richardson as this like bouncy Gerald green, Vince Carter type. But then he goes out and dominates the dunk contest. Like, I, I don't think, yeah, like you said, Henderson didn't really use his athleticism to his advantage in games whatsoever. And after calling him the most athletic player in the draft, later 
uh, Wayne Ellington, his childhood friend who played at North Carolina, gets picked. And they mentioned he actually tested better than Gerald Henderson athletically. So is he the is he the most athletic player in the draft? That Wayne was Ellington. shocking. Wayne, Wayne Ellington. Wayne Ellington. <laughs> yeah, like, Wayne Ellington. Nothing about him says he's the most athletic player, but he is. Uh, I'm just imagining like current day Wayne Ellington doing like between the legs dunks in Knicks practices and no one even like realizing it. Yeah, I never thought of him as an athlete at all. Did you guys, maybe James as a more of a college basketball guy, you'll you'll probably have a thought on this more than Alex might, but I, I feel like as a college basketball fan back then, you kind of had to choose between that Duke team and that UNC team um, because they were both good around the same time and they kind of mirrored each other in a lot of ways. Like, you know, Henderson and Ellington felt like the same player, but on two different teams. Like, I did not like that Duke team. I did not like Gerald Henderson at all. I was Wayne Ellington, Ty Lawson, UNC through and through around that time. Yeah, I I definitely didn't like the Duke team. It wasn't one of my favorite UNC teams. Uh, I mean, Hansborough was just not not my type of guy. But um, I definitely, when those teams played, I pulled for UNC. But after watching this draft, I am all North Carolina out, you guys. Uh, I think Stu Scott said North Carolina over 50 times during this draft. <laughs> well, speaking of, at number 13, <laughs> Indiana goes Tyler Hansborough, who immediately got an overrated chant from the crowd in New York City. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but, hey, Proved right. to be correct. <laughs> I, I, it kind of reminded me, like, I forgot how hated he was at the college level. I mean, he is, no matter what you think about him, like one of the probably five best or five most accomplished, at least, college players of our lifetime. But not a guy that outside of North Carolina got a lot of respect. So if if Hansborough was in the 2020 draft, where would he be on draft boards? Uh, wouldn't be on them. <laughs> would he? Would he go in the second round? He's like he's like 34 years old at this point. <laughs> I I just don't see the up. Like he certainly wouldn't be going in the lottery. I'll tell you that. I mean, I, I just remember wa- watching his tape, like his highlight reel during the draft. And it was just like, uh, what what part of this translates to the NBA? <laughs> there, there was, I think Phyllis had a line where he's like, the thing that really concerns me is that he doesn't elevate over other players to get his shot off. It was basically he won't be able to shoot. Yeah, I mean, I, there was one clip in there where he, he chases down an offensive rebound that comes off the rim, catches it on the baseline takes like one dribble and then immediately pulls up for like this 180 turnaround <laughs> mid-ranger. And I'm like, what the hell is this? I like, know exactly no what you're talking about. The, no wonder he led the conference all time in scoring. He just jacks every time he has a rebound. The thing with him is he was skilled and he was a great college player, but sure. Yeah. Like even, even if you want to compare him to someone like Frank Kaminsky, you know, another senior, a guy who in retrospect, and even at the time was like, what are you doing? Like, at least Kaminsky could drive a little bit, could shoot the three. Like, Hansborough was not shooting really any threes at all. Like, I, I'm looking through drafts as we speak right now and, and looking at other, like, senior big men or white big men, more or less, who have gone in round one. And for the most part, almost all of them could at least project as a shooter. You know, think of, like, your Kelly Olynyk type of guys. Like, Tyler Hansborough had none of that whatsoever. Like, you were basically drafting him to do exactly what he did at North Carolina, and maybe maybe 2009 was like the final season of the NBA where that made any sense. But I mean, it, 
based on how his career went, I mean, he was out of the league, I think, before he turned 30. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 2015-16, he was 30. That was the last time he, he played. I know he's playing in the G League more recently than that, but he's kind of he kind of falls under that player, you know, that, that player type of he's undersized, but he's a rebounder, but he can't shoot. So if you try to make him shoot, then he's not going to be grabbing offensive rebounds. And if you have him go for rebounds, then he's messing up your floor spacing. And it, it's, I don't know, <laughs> reminds me of Chris Humphreys, honestly, uh, who like spent the early part of his career being just like this insane rebounder, but then the league changed and he had to shoot threes, but then he wasn't rebounding anymore. It's just like there's nowhere, there's just like nowhere for Hansbro to be. And I guess in the modern NBA, he might be a small ball center, but I mean, he, I don't think he would succeed either because he also, for his career, blocked you know, 0.2 shots a game. So what's, what's the hit rate on white power forwards from America? <laughs> Dude, I really wish basketball reference play index would add a white American filter. Is, is it basically just Ryan Anderson? Like I'm trying to think of like another one from the past 20 years that no. was a no, quality you, star. You're right. Usually, usually you think they're from America and then it's like an Olenek, oh, he's actually Canadian situation. Well, it's Kevin Love, right? Is that the only... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we Love. talked like, about this on the pod, didn't we, Alex? Like, sometime in the past year, like, who's the second best white player in the NBA? It gets really bleak really fast after Kevin Love. I, I was just... I was listening to... Um, uh, I think it was, like, a recent Dunked On pod, and they were just going through... Like, there was, like, Henry Ellenson and, like, TJ Leaf were, like, taken in, like, back-to-back drafts, and just, like, that, that like, archetype of, like, 6'10", not gonna not gonna be a rim protector at all you hope he can shoot like those guys at least you thought they might be able to shoot but it's just like the hit rate on that type of player seems to basically be zero percent yep so that's why you take him at 13 (laughs) all right to round out the lottery phoenix has the 14th pick uh they go earl clark another pick that i really like uh and this pick of course is interrupted by the arrival of brandon jennings with the 14th pick in the 2009 nba draft the phoenix suns select Earl Clark from the University of Louisville. Earl is not here. But, but the 10th pick in the 2009 NBA draft by the Milwaukee Bucks, Brandon Jennings is here, so why don't you welcome him? Brandon? Yeah, so they announce Earl Clark. And did, did, was it just me, or did it sound like David Stern was kind of pissed that he wasn't there? Like the, His the tone of voice yeah. was like, not here. But then I, Brandon Jennings is just standing right next to him as he's announcing that another player was picked. I did think David Stern was awesome in this. Oh, yeah. Because he, like the, the Knicks crowd, the, the crowd there was obviously just hammered. And they were just being really, really obnoxious early on. But he was so good at just sort of, kind of playing to the crowd without it seeming like they were like booing hit. Like he wasn't getting rattled like Roger Goodell or something like that. So there was a great moment early on. I think it was maybe even before the first pick when he's kind of doing his opening address. And he mentions that team USA had won the gold in 08. And that begins a USA chant, which then turns into uh, as, as Stern continues his speech, he mentions that the Lakers had just won the title so the USA chant then gradually turns to boos. So it's like half boo, half USA. <laughs> and then it sounds like people are booing the USA for a little bit. Like it, it, I wrote down in my notes, like it, it was like the sound from the set of like a Jerry Springer show. 
that included 42 NBA players from 10 countries participating in the Beijing Olympics, which the USA won and brought home the gold. And an NBA season for the ages in which the Lakers won their 15th championship. I I noticed yeah. that as well. I thought that was uh, that was a great. It's it's like two seconds where it overlaps, but it's it's pretty <laughs> funny. Yeah, Stern was on his game. He was in he was in peak form. Um, you know, he he had a couple little quips. You know, after one pick, he comes out and says it's a very rowdy group tonight, and you know, kind of starts feeling himself. You can tell later in the first round. I don't really have anything to say about Earl Clark, but I'm guessing, Nick, you might have something to say about the next pick. Well, I do. Um, The only other thing I I think we need to touch on with Earl Clark, and, you know, maybe we can hit this at the end, but one of the big major themes that we haven't mentioned yet throughout this draft is that everyone is talking like Amari Stoudemire is being traded like any second. It sounds like it's a done deal. They bring Steve Kerr on immediately after this pick. And he's talking about possible trades and talking about Earl Clark, which I thought was kind of ahead of its time to bring a GM on right away and and just basically give like a live reaction to the pick, which was kind of cool. But they, they throw a graphic up on the screen that the the proposed trade for Amari Stoudemire is Brandon Wright and Brandon is spelled wrong. Brandon Wright, Andres Biedrins and Marco Bellinelli straight up for Amari Stoudemire. And, and again, the way people like the way they're talking, it's like this deal could happen any moment. Amari's probably done in Phoenix. And of course, he ends up playing out that season in Phoenix, plays all 82 games, starts all 82 games. They win 54. They end up going to the Western Conference Finals. So in retrospect, probably good. You know, they end up losing him in free agency the next year. But that's when things really fall off for him injury wise. But uh, probably a good move by then GM Steve Kerr to not trade Amari Stoudemire for a package built around Brandon Wright. Yeah, he was he was kind of talking out of, well, I mean, it, it was pretty good GM speak, but um, it it sort of seemed like they just wanted a mulligan on the Shaq experiment yes. and would have traded Amari for a really good package. But basically, it, it he was making it seem like, yeah, we're going to have to rebuild now. But it just sort of seemed like he was saying that to like be nice to Shaq. Like, really, what we just wanted to do is just get Shaq out of here. So they traded Shaq earlier in the day, and we'll get to that. Shaq ends up actually making a live appearance on the draft, which is incredible. But they, they trade him to Cleveland earlier in the day, and the, the I'm sure the ESPN crew, like Shaq is Shaq, and even at this point, he's 37, I think. Um, you know, still a major name and a major star. Like Mark Jackson is talking like Shaq is 26 years old coming to join LeBron in Cleveland. I didn't realize he was already 37 at this point. I mean, it... <laughs> but yeah, I agree. They were uh, they were hyping them up a ton. But I mean, also, I yeah, just the names together of you know LeBron and Shaq after Shaq had done it with uh, you know Wade especially um, was was going to be exciting. I think he had he did like his whole thing where you know how he loves to sort of compare the guards he's played with like Kobe and Penny and Dwayne like I think he did like a whole thing sort of like about how he was gonna now win a title with with LeBron um and he also during that interview well I'll say I'll save the interview okay all right so we'll get back to that but at 15 Detroit takes the basically just like a tall tee with a body inside of it being Austin Day from Gonzaga 
Jay Billis is ticked off. He is pissed that Detroit <laughs> took Austin Day, who he believes basically without saying it is just he basically like went on like a two minute rant without calling him a pussy, uh, but essentially implied that he's a huge pussy. <laughs> that's that's all I got from it as well. I thought it was crazy that um, Austin Day got not only got invited to the green room, but it wasn't like he, he wasn't in the green room for an overly long time. Um, and they also said that he joined Adam Morrison, Dan Dickow, and John Stockton as Gonzaga first rounders. So there's a there's officially a 25% hit rate on Gonzaga first rounders. <laughs> yeah, I don't have much to say about this one. I mean, he I think his career ended up going basically exactly like everyone thought. Like, he was not terrible when he was out there. He just was always so weak, more or less, that he, he just kept getting overpowered. So at 16, Chicago is on the board. Uh, they're, they're coming off of the number one pick the previous year. They get to the playoffs with Derrick Rose. Things are moving in the right direction. Uh, they take James Johnson out of Wake Forest. Not a lot to say about this one. I mean, he's a guy who's still in the league. Uh, I know they mentioned that Minnesota really, really wanted James Johnson, and, and that's part of the reason that they end up trading that pick at 18 uh, to Denver. That's where they take Ty Lawson. But they, they mentioned on the telecast that Minnesota was hoping to get Johnson at 18. He goes 16. Basically, the entirety of the analysis is about uh, how he's a mixed martial arts champion back in Wyoming. That sounds like the future that Kanye West is going to have um, on his ranch. But yeah, I mean, I, James Johnson got to go. He kind of had a second win to his career with Miami. And it's not, also not surprising that Pat Riley ended up with someone on his team that was a martial arts champion. Yeah, I mean, he. it seems like a mediocre pick and it I mean it kind of was but I mean he might be top 10 or at least top 12 from this draft in career earnings so um shouts to James Johnson yeah I mean how many guys ahead of him are already out of the league right Austin, <clears throat> Earl Clark Hansborough Henderson Williams Jennings Hill Flynn Evans I mean he's one he's like more than half of these guys by by the time we get to pick 16 more than half these guys are out of the league by like 2019 and he's he's still hanging around and like you said I almost feel like he's now kind of got a third wind you know being a borderline starter after that trade to Minnesota so at 17 Drew Holiday goes to Philadelphia one of the better value picks of the entire draft Um, there's talk of of what they're going to do with this roster uh, JVG asks, are they going to play Elton Brand with Samuel Dallenbear? So a lot oh. of questions swirling around this team. Like, how's, how's Elton Brand going to fit with Samuel Dallenbear? Uh, how does Drew Holiday fit into this? And they mentioned, I, I completely forgot this, they mentioned that Holiday was the number one prospect in the country, according to rivals. And you look at the numbers at UCLA, he averaged like eight points a game. Um, but then you, you, you look at the roster that the Bruins had, he's basically playing like fourth fiddle to what's a really good team. At that point, they were basically going to the final four every year. Um, and he had to kind of play behind Darren Collison, who, you know, ironically ends up going a few picks after him to new Orleans, but he doesn't really have the, the, you know, the freshman year that I think a lot of people thought he did. And that factored into his slide uh, quite a bit all the way down to 17. But, um, you know, ultimately this ends up being one of the best, you know, pound for pound value picks of the entire draft. They were yeah. they were spot on with the analysis about him too. Like they right. like Billis was saying he's gonna be a he's gonna be a really good defender. <clears throat> um, questions about his shot and everything like that, but just based on like the scouting report from back then and his measurables and how he would have tested, I feel like he goes 
quite a bit higher if, if they're redoing this draft. Like not knowing not knowing hindsight, but just based on scouting reports, I think he's probably a top ten pick now. So at eighteen, Minnesota's third pick of the first round, and they take another point guard, Ty Lawson, uh, who at the time we don't know this, but they end up trading him to Denver later in the draft. Uh, there's some questions as to whether they'll keep the pick uh, at the time, but they take Ty Lawson and they end up trading him to Denver for a 2010 first round pick. So they basically just roll it over. And who do they take with that pick? Luke Babbitt. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Luke Babbitt, man. Another, was that another uh, white American power forward? Yeah, yeah, there was. I, uh, in the, in the BS report, Bill Simmons compares Ty Lawson to, uh, his, his comp being Aaron Brooks, if he can get a jump shot, which I thought was wildly (laughs) accurate, like (laughs) extremely good comp for Ty Lawson's, not only like his peak, but also his uh, career trajectory as a whole. Um, his career ended extremely quickly, but I know he had some, uh, like substance abuse issues at some point. Well, he was, I remember even just like two years after this draft, it was laughable. Like it it seemed like Ty Lawson was going to be better than Johnny Flynn or Ricky Rubio, uh, just like a year or two after this draft. And it was just added to the comedy that the the one of the three point guards they decided to trade was, was the best one. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask you that James, I, I think you guys probably both are a little bit higher on Rubio than I am. I've never been a big Rubio guy, but Peak Ty Lawson better than peak Rubio? Oh, man. Um, I think so. His, his three-year peak, 16.5 points, 8.5 assists, three rebounds, 1.5 steals, 45% from the field. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember his peak being better than Rubio's. I would imagine that Rubio has always been a vastly superior defender, but... Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely remember thinking that he was better than Rubio, uh, at least early on. Yeah, I mean, his three-year peak, looking back on it now, I mean, he had one, you know, basically there were two seasons where he, could, he probably could have been an all-star. I mean, he's averaging basically 16 points, nine assists with only three turnovers and doing it very efficiently, you know, like 12, 13 shots a game. I mean, I mean, wild though. His, I mean, he was his career was over. He's 29 his last season in the league. Yeah, I mean, he had some DUI issues right. that that mounted pretty quickly. Um, like you said, six and a half free throw attempts during his best season, which is insane for a guy of that size. Do you guys have any memory of him playing 69 games for the Kings in 2016-17? <laughs> I only oh, remember I read it. I would have I would have never been able to get that had you just asked no. me. But now I can like vaguely remember. Although maybe I'm just remembering Isaiah Thomas. Or Aaron Brooks. Or Aaron Brooks. <laughs> Who knows? All right, so we get another point guard at number 19. Jeff Teague from Wake Forest goes to Atlanta. Uh, essentially implied that he's the heir apparent to Mike Bibby, who was coming off of a another good regular season, poor postseason for the Hawks. And they, they keep those two together for one year. And then Bibby's out on his way to, I, I believe, Miami at that point. Uh, and Teague k- takes over. Uh they, they threw it right out there with Jeff Teague. And, and Bill just said, quote, at the end of the day, it's questionable whether he really cares on the defensive end. Uh, but other than that, pretty good pick. I mean, kind of right up there with Holiday. And, you know, I, I think peak Holiday was certainly better than peak Jeff Teague. But getting a guy who ends up being an all-star, ends up being your starter for the next seven or eight years, 
uh, really strong value pick for for Atlanta at 19. Yeah, he was the last good player taken uh, in the first round, pretty much. <laughs> I didn't realize it at the time, but that's a good way to put it. It's uh, it's weird the way they talk about him that he didn't go higher. Like the yeah. the, the, way, the way they talk about him compared to people like Austin Day, for example, is crazy. Yeah. I, that's what I kept thinking, like, with all the analysis of, of guys like Teague and Holiday and, like, even Lawson and DeRozan, like, the analysis was more glowing at the time on those guys than it was a guy like Johnny Flynn or Hashim beat. yet nobody thought it was weird that those guys went ahead of those guys when, like, if you just listen to what they said about Jeff Teague and listen to what they said about Johnny Flynn it'd be pretty impossible to walk away from that with the assumption that everyone thought Flynn was better, but everyone did assume that. Have we been able to come up with a good reason for this? And it's not like it's specific to this draft, but especially when you watch the telecast, like you said, it's so obvious that the the beat pick, there's just no excitement for it. Like what was, I mean, was it just like he appeared on mock drafts early in the season and that was that, like there was no changing it. Like I, I, I struggle to find any, any real reason like he didn't make sense even with the Grizzlies roster construction and it's not even just Memphis like had the beat not gone too, he was probably going to go three four five was some of it just that he went to a school like UConn and that bumped him up some and just kind of you know the height and I mean I don't know I, I guess people figured he would change go ahead James I just think it's the center thing. Like, like yeah. if you look at every draft like in every top 10 there's a bust of a guy that was a center. Basically, every every draft like since like 2005, like even the <clears throat> like Bagley, Aiton over Doncic thing. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. teams just fall in love with big men, and it's it's crazy. Like, it you'd think that it would have stopped five or six years ago, but um, I mean, certainly in 2009, it was still going on right. for for beat to go there. Like GMs just for for whatever reason. Like, I think. There's been a lot of talk about how this was an ownership pick, the, the, the beat one, but um, just teams fall in love with the idea of like a franchise big man. It's 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 weird. You'd think that would have phased out once the <laughs> Shaq, Robinson, you know, Olajuwon, like once that crew was, was kind of on the downswing, you would have thought that the, this logic would have gone with it. Because at this point, how many great centers are there in the NBA who you're worried about matching up with? Like basically just Dwight Howard? Maybe Pau Gasol. Well, soon, soon to be Mark Gasol. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. All right. So you, you kind of set the table for it, James. Not a lot of excitement in picks 20 through 30 of this draft. So at 20, we get Eric Maynor. Kind of one, the first guy that we got to who I was like, totally forgot about him. He was actually pretty good for a while. He ends up being traded early on in his rookie year to Oklahoma City, where he has a nice little, little run for a couple of years before he gets hurt. Um, but doing some digging on that, basically the jazz needed to dump Matt Harpering's salary. So they end up using Eric Maynard to do that. 21 Darren Collison goes to new Orleans. Uh, they go very heavy into the fact that both of his parents are Olympic level sprinters and Stuart Scott closes out the analysis by saying, quote, at the very least, he's going to be fast. (laughs) Stuart Scott, man. I love, but he has. I think his favorite bit is like jokingly downplaying someone's accomplishments. You know, like at one point he was like Michael Jordan. Ever heard of him? Or like all all Shaq did in L.A. was win three championships, like stuff like that. 
Well, I, I have one example of where he did not downplay someone's accomplishments, and that is uh, after the Shaq interview, Stu Scott says Shaq, quote, could be the best passing big in the league right now. And and that was Whoa. coming off of Whoa. That was coming that was coming off of a season where he averaged under two assists. Of <laughs> um, but like that, I think that's he said the that. passing in the league at the time. <laughs> he said he was the best passing big in the league. This whole thing was like a Shaq production, basically. It was it was the draft was just <laughs> held to prop up the Shaq trade to the Cavs. Yeah. So to close out Collison, yet another player who was traded after his rookie year. He was actually pretty damn good in, in 09-10 for New Orleans. Ends up starting about half of his games, plays 76 games, averages 12 points, shoots 48% from the field, 40% from three, six assists, two and a half rebounds, one steal. Really, really good right away. And then they end up trading him to Indiana. Yeah, I mean... He just had such a forgettable career. Like it, it was a long career based on the the guys that got taken in this draft in the first round. But mm-hmm. well, it was just one of the situations where it was clear he was too good to be Chris Paul's backup, right? Kind of like how people perceived Reggie Jackson as being too good to be Russell Westbrook's backup. Um, right. And you know, I mean, Collison's going to have a better career than Reggie Jackson, but um, yeah. So at 22, Portland gets Victor Claver. Um, they traded up two spots to, to have that honor. They sure did. <laughs> Fran Fraschilla loves the pick. Lottery pick talent, <laughs> getting him at 22. Huge deal. So Claver does not come over until 2012. Ends up playing three years in Portland and only plays a total of 80 games in those three years. So this one ends up being, you know, you hesitate to call any pick in the 20s a bust, but basically a bust. That brings us to Sacramento at 23. They go Omri Caspi, the first Israeli player ever drafted into the NBA. Uh, and this brought about another great Fran Fraschilla quote. Well, first of all, Stu, they better have good falafel in Sacramento because they're going to need it for this guy. He should use that same line uh, when Benny Avija gets taken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a lot to say about Omri Caspi, as is the case with a lot of these guys in the 20s. 24. B.J. Mullins goes to Dallas. Uh, They end up trading him immediately to OKC, uh, who holds the 25th pick. So they basically just swap one pick. Dallas ends up picking up a future second rounder in the deal. Um, Really kind of a tough move by Stu Scott after this pick, who tosses it to Jay Billis and says, Jay, what do you like about him? Like, just throwing him a grenade right on live TV. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's another one of those guys that for me, like, I remember the high school mixtape being like one of those that like raised questions of like, where's this guy playing? Like, what level of basketball is this? <laughs> yeah, like, he was right. so incredibly dominant in high school and was actually pretty decent at Ohio State. I think that was a down year for them. Like, that was right after they had made the run to the title game a couple <clears> of years <throat> earlier and they were they were kind of in a transition period. But I, it was just one of those guys that I, I really don't remember anything about his career. Like, as soon as he got to the NBA, like, I guess I remember him being on the Bobcats for a little bit, but he he washed out pretty quickly. So that brings us to Oklahoma City at 25. Um, and they, of course, send this pick to Dallas. Ends up being Roddy Bobois, who they note right away was discovered by Michael Petrus at an open gym in France. With the 25th pick in the 2009 NBA draft, the Oklahoma City Thunder 
select Rodrigue Boa from Quanta Pitru, Guadalupe, and playing for the Cholet France team. I think I can speak for all of us and say, like, we all loved Roddy Bobois at the time. And, uh, like, in the years after this, we would get glimpses of him in Dallas. Every now and then, he would have, like, a 20 and 10 game. Um, kind of reminded me, actually, a lot of Brandon Jennings. Yeah, they probably should have traded him uh, back when people still thought he was going to be a stud someday. That's the thing I remember most about Bobois is that he was supposedly untouchable. <laughs> So at 26, Chicago makes another another great value pick, and maybe you know this is up there with with Drew Holiday and, and Darren Collison and Jeff Teague as as one of the better picks uh, based on where it was in the draft. They take Taj Gibson. Uh, they traded Thabo Cephalosha to OKC to get this pick. Um, not a lot to say about it. I mean, Taj Gibson is Taj Gibson. He's basically been the same guy his entire career. But I mean, getting someone like that who was still you know, starting games, whether he should have been or not this past season, um, 11 years later, great pick at 26. I always kind of liked Gibson for reasons I can't quite explain. It just seemed like he was always productive in those like 28 minutes he got and just, you know, was hitting those 18 footers. Yeah. I mean, he was 24 at the time he debuted for, for Chicago that following season. So he was kind of, he was basically, you know, mid, mid prime, like right when he came into the NBA, never really got a whole lot better but was ready to contribute immediately for those Bulls teams, which right. until Rose got hurt, I mean, he was, he stepped in and, and started 70 games right away. And, you know, was, was, was a key piece of what very easily could have been a much more memorable run for, for that Bulls team. 27, Tamari Carroll goes to Memphis. Uh, this is a pick that Memphis received in the Kyle Lowry, Adonald Foyle trade earlier in the season. Uh, another pretty good value pick. Um, you know, a, a guy that ended up probably having his best years in Atlanta and had a decent little run in Brooklyn a couple of years ago. But Damari Carroll goes 27, 28. Minnesota is back on the clock. That's where they take Wayne Ellington. Uh, like I said earlier, I mean, I loved Wayne Ellington in college, but kind of knew that he was one of those guys who was probably going to end up being a, a much better college player than he would NBA player. Not, not exactly a sky high ceiling. No, but I think... I mean, he still went too late here. And I, th I think he, I mean, he might have been a fringe lottery pick if they were doing the draft today, just because he was yeah. probably the second best shooter in this draft. At, at least, like, going into the draft, if you were just yeah. listening who the best shooters were, I think you probably would have said he was second best behind. Behind Hansborough, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so the last two picks, the Lakers are on the clock at 29 and ESPN really teases this up. They go to break saying that there's a big trade involving the Lakers and the Knicks. And you can kind of hear the crowd start to swell in the background. And then we come back from commercial to find out that LA had just dealt the 29th pick to the Knicks. Uh, so they could take Tony Douglas out of Florida state. Um, and then immediately after this, they announced that the Knicks had traded Quinn Richardson, who at the time was a, a reasonably good contributor for Darko Milicic. So the Knicks, the Knicks crowd is just on like a complete roller coaster at this point. Just a lot of mass confusion as they announce the Darko trade. I feel like at first I heard a lot of cheers, but then it quickly it got more, uh, it got a little more jumbled as the uh, as the reaction went on. I thought uh, Tony Douglas probably had the longest shorts of uh, just just based on the tape of any of the the college players in the draft. I feel like his. I think it's his him or Flynn. Were, it, 
Yeah, I think we might have been sort of at an apex of short length uh, around this time, and then things quickly flipped. So we finish out with the Cavaliers at number 30. They had the best record in the league the previous season. They take Christian Iyenga. Uh, mm-hmm. And at this point, they like they really don't offer much analysis about the pick. They're still pushing the Shaq angle very heavily. Like this is this is more about Shaq than it is Iyenga. Uh, but the, the photo that they show of Christian Iyenga very possibly was just pulled from his Facebook page. Like it's it's him in like a track jacket, like looking the other way. Like definitely not a composite, you know, the type of photo that you'd see in any sort of sports draft. And and if you look on his basketball reference page, he looks completely different. And this is only like three years apart before he comes to the NBA. I they someone might have bait and switched somebody else uh, to come play in the NBA. But the footage that they use for Christian Ianga reminds me a lot of the Giannis footage, where it's just like there are there are twelve people in the stands here. This is Division Two basketball overseas. They lean a lot on like. You know, this is the same club that Rubio played for, but like a division lower or something like that. Like they're like, you know, they know I could develop players and they I think they throw out Rudy Fernandez's name. It's just like a lot of, you know, this guy, he's been through the system. Uh, Might as well just, you know, might as well just throw a dart. Yeah, there was not a lot of excitement about this pick specifically. And and like I said, it was more about Shaq at this point. I, I think Shaq had just finished up his interview uh, with Lisa Salters, you know, he called in. Um, but James, you, we can kind of get back to this now. I know we kind of teased it um, when we were talking about Austin Day, but Shaq, uh, to, to someone like me who didn't really realize, you know, we're, we're watching this 11 years later, I, I don't know when exactly this happened during the day, but like Shaq kind of breaks some news during his interview on the draft. Yeah, they they hadn't they hadn't mentioned it at all. So it, it is kind of interesting to wonder like when it did happen. But I mean, the, so Mike, apparently this was the same day Michael Jackson died and Shaq gave a, a, a shout out that it probably hasn't aged that well. Um, probably aged a little bit better than the Hashim to beat pick, but, uh, but still not great. And, and that they might've, this might, I think it, it was kind of at a time when there was probably enough controversy surrounding the Michael Jackson that they didn't want to make a big deal of it. Like, like RIP, like legend, that type of stuff, like from the beginning of the telecast, but it is kind of weird that that was the first uh, mention of that on the entire broadcast. Right. I have in my notes, should they have mentioned it earlier? So Shaq <laughs> mentions it. And then at, well, after the interview, you know, they have to say something about it at that point. And Stu Scott says, you know, you heard Shaq mention Michael Jackson, you know, who passed away earlier today. I think it's implied that it happened a couple hours before the draft, but this is also 2009 and like maybe news wasn't disseminating quite as quickly at that point. Um, who knows, but very odd of him to begin it with that. Like if you're the NBA, like was Michael Jackson famous enough or not controversial enough at the time that they should have like at least mentioned it in the intro somewhere. Famous enough. Yes. But I don't think he was not controversial enough. I don't. I was never a big Michael Jackson guy. I, th- I feel like he was a little before my time. But like in 2009, was it fully known? Like all of the stuff about him. If you wanted to find it, you could find lots of horrible stuff about him. But I think there was just there was enough of kind of a like let's not talk about it type of attitude uh, regarding like people. There were just so many people loved his music 
that I just don't think any um, major uh, media companies were going out of their way to point out all the stuff he'd done. So again, they're talking about Shaq like they just acquired, you know, the Cavs just got 26-year-old Shaquille O'Neal. He's 37. However, he is coming off of an all-star season with the Suns at age 36. 18, uh, 18 points, eight and a half rebounds, led the league in field goal percentage the previous year. So even though he's 37, like there's some reason to believe maybe he has something left in the tank. Um, but the Cavs do have Zadrunas Ogalskis at this point. And, uh, the, you know, they ask him, you know, is, is it possible that you'd be willing to come off the bench? And Shaq, you know, at first is like, well, you know, maybe I, I do whatever I need to do. And then he eventually ends the answer by saying, I really don't see that as possible. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was definitely blindsided. You know, he, he definitely showed up to that interview, um, hoping to make a really, really good impression about how much he wants to win and how good of a teammate he is. Mm. But that he was blindsided by that question, like, whoa, like, <laughs> let's not get carried away. Some shades of mellow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So I, meant, I mentioned bringing on Steve Kerr right after their son's pick at 14 and, and how that felt a little bit ahead of its time. I think another thing that's ahead of his time is bringing on a player who was traded hours before to talk about the trade on live TV, right? Like, would that happen today? I, I feel like it would, right? I mean, like it's, it's kind of like the, you know, the Jimmy Butler situation in Minnesota <laughs> where, you know, that comes out on Jimmy Twitter Butler. and then five hours later he's on ESPN talking about it. Whereas like, you know, I, some of the guys that we've seen traded in recent years, like, or even signed away, you know, like Kawhi Leonard would never want to go on live TV during the draft to talk about signing with the Clippers. But someone like Shaq, I, I think, was more than open to it. And I don't know, it just it felt a little bit like something that you wouldn't really see a whole lot uh, in 2009. You know, a player kind of reacting almost live to something that happened, you know, involving their career. Yeah, maybe that's a function of, you know, today a player could literally just either tweet something out or post a video on Instagram being like, you know, <laughs> thanks for the memories, Phoenix. I'm, I'm ready to get to work in Cleveland or whatever. And there'd be no need to actually bring them on because any, anyone could just go on, you know, or they, or they would just, you know, the, 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 the telecast would just pull their tweet or pull their video and show that. But yeah, I, I, I agree. It's uh, something that I wouldn't imagine would happen in that exact way now. It's weird that the Steve Kerr thing seems ahead of its time because you obviously would much rather hear from the general manager than anyone else in the organization. But I, I think Steve Kerr had those connections from like his days in the media. And then, I mean, Steve Kerr and Shaq are probably the easiest general manager and player to get on the phone right. or on TV for something like that. I think most GMs just wouldn't want to do it. They wouldn't see the upside, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Let's empty out our notes here. One, one thing that I have is, you know, looking at the Johnny Flynn pick, um, which ended up, of course, being a bust. Uh, I started to think about, like, since Mello, has Syracuse put any good players into the NBA? Like, I, I think there's a pretty strong case that the best Syracuse player to enter the NBA since 2003 is Jeremy Grant in 2015. <laughs> 17 Syracuse players have been drafted since Carmelo Anthony, and pretty much all of them have been terrible to average at best. That's, that's pretty wild. Um, I mean, there have been some kind of notable busts right. in there with like uh, Wesley Johnson. 
Keon Waiters went for. Um, MCW. Um, Fab, Fab Mello, RIP. Uh, the, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that that's, that's really noteworthy considering just how big of a deal that program was after the Mellow title. Um, right. I mean, to get 17 players drafted, not even, you know, we're not even talking guys who come up through the G League or anything like that. I mean, just to get 17 players drafted in that span is is huge. I mean, there's not many schools that have significantly more than that. A lot of ammo if you're ever recruiting against uh, Jim Beha. Yeah, right. Like, do you want to be the next Michael Benege? Do you want to be <laughs> the next Tyler Ennis? What else do you guys have in the notes? Anything? They need a note, yeah. like... Um, when they did the Blake Griffin pick, uh, that Mike Dunleavy was the only coach GM in the league at the time. Um, one of those, one of those trends that I just like owners, like how dumb are owners that this has happened multiple times? Like, um, but that, that was like, it always just seems to be someone who definitely should not have that role. Um, and then, uh, uh, there, there were a lot of references, mostly from Billis, to stickbacks, like instead of like putbacks, stickbacks. <laughs> I, I haven't, I haven't heard that phrase in a while. I only have two notes that are actually from that Bill Simmons podcast that I want to just dump out real quick because it was good context of the league and interesting. So Bill Simmons and Chad Ford spend the first basically 15 minutes of the podcast talking about a trade that would involve. Rajon Rondo for Tony Parker straight up, um, which was very strange. And then Chad Ford also mentions that uh, he compares Kevin Durant to, because Bill Simmons brings up the idea of trading Blake Griffin and three first round picks for Kevin Durant, of course. Uh, And then Chad Ford comes back with, well, Kevin Durant's like a hot supermodel. There's no way he's staying in OKC, which was really weird and kind of foreshadowing. Supermodels um, how, hate OKC. I know. Well, I, it was weird because, you know, I, I feel like at the time, you know, kind of leading up to Durant's leaving OKC, like he wasn't viewed as like this kind of like, you know, now he's viewed as like a drama queen or however you want to put it or that kind of a person. But like at the time, I felt like I didn't think that was the the notion at all. And Chad Ford just kind of dropping out of uh, nowhere was a surprise. That That basically... So, so basically, Bill Simmons has Clippers tickets and wants to see Kevin Durant. And Blake Griffin went to Oklahoma, so naturally he should play for the Oklahoma City. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yes. <laughs> Love the Blake Griffin yeah. buzz cut. Yeah, oh, man. That's awesome. Terrible. And, and Curry, too. There's some of those highlights of Curry at Davidson, it's like he just shaved his head. Like, it looks like Dwayne Wade in the 08 Olympics. We skimmed past Damari Carroll, but um, as I, I I mentioned to you, I gave you guys a little teaser uh, before you guys watched the the draft. And uh, when Damari Carroll gets selected, Jay Billis says they call him the junkyard dog. And less than 15 seconds later, Stu Scott says his nickname is the junkyard dog for his dreadlocks and his work ethic. And <laughs> I thought that was pretty amazing TV. One minor thing that I had on the telecast is the little draft jingle noise when the pick is in. Mm-hmm. Do they still do that on the telecast? I have not actually watched the last like four drafts. 
watch the telecast. Like that's not a thing anymore, right? I actually don't know. I can't. I really can't remember. I don't. That sound like instantly brought me back to 2009. I think we need to highlight some of the notable second rounders who we didn't mention. I don't want to go deep really on any of these guys, but Dewan Blair is the one that sticks out. He goes 37 to the Spurs, and there are multiple mentions. You know, as we alluded to with I think the Charlotte pick or the Indiana pick, like there are three or four times throughout the first round where the ESPN crew is convinced that Dewan Blair could be the pick here. Like he, for whatever reason, despite being like 45 years old and having no ACLs, like people really thought he was going to go in round one. Yeah. I mean, he was awesome in college, but I am guessing Jay Billis did not have the medical information that a lot of the teams did because he had him as like a top 12, 12 player in the draft. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was a top, 10 player in college there before that's for sure. But uh, I mean, even at this time in the NBA, I yeah. feel like it was pretty clear that a guy like Blair was, was not going right. to add much. The, the fact that LeVance fields from that pit team was not even considered as a second round pick says a lot about where the NBA was going at that point. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Pendergraf, uh, then, then known as, well, I think he was, was he Jeff Pendergraf at the time and then later became Jeff Ayers? I don't, I don't remember which way that went, but he was the first pick of the second round. Uh, Sergio Yule, who we heard from on last week's run it back from Spain, was the 34th pick. He never ended up coming over. Um, Jonas Jarebko went 39 to Detroit, the guy who ended up playing a lot of years. Jody Meeks, 41 to Milwaukee. Chase Budinger, we had a cat alert at 44 uh, to Detroit. Nick Calathis, uh, who had some a, a decent run, probably more noted for his his work in Europe. Uh, more than anything, went 45. Um, and then two guys in the 40s who are still very much prominent contributors in the NBA, Patrick Beverly, 42, and Danny Green, 46, to Cleveland. Danny Green has undergone with the fifth highest VORP in this class. Um, yeah, it seems it seems wild in hindsight that he didn't get drafted higher, but I don't think teams were as locked in on like 3 and D players in like 09. Well, he- didn't didn't the Spurs basically make him a shooter? That's a good point, actually. Was he? He was a twenty-seven percent three-point shooter as a rookie with the Cavs, and they they basically gave up on him. I mean, they gave him away to the Spurs. He was kind of like a D-league guy at that point. Um, and like you said, James, he didn't really come into prominence until the Spurs kind of rehabbed him. And you know, by by two thousand twelve, he was like a forty-four percent three-point shooter. Yeah, that was definitely just. Chip England um, doing that. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, like he was a good athlete at UNC. If anyone thought he could shoot, he would have gotten higher. Patrick Beverly, it doesn't end up playing in the NBA until 2012. His his story has been been told over and over, but um, you know, doesn't even make the team out of the draft despite being taken 42nd, um, and ends up resurfacing for Houston after a run in Europe. Anyone else really stand out from round two? You mentioned Patty, Patty Mills. Mills. Yeah. Oh, Patty Mills. That's right. Yeah, yeah he's, he's kind of in yeah. the, the Beverly Green category. Uh, I read a scouting report on Goran Sutan, who uh, went 50th to Utah, never ended up playing a minute in the NBA. Uh, but but one report called him a more polished Nanad Kerstich. <laughs> so imagine having that sentence written about you. And Nanad Kerstich is already so polished. How could he get more polished? <laughs> All right, is that it? Uh, yeah, I think that's so. it for me. Yeah, I, I've nothing else to add. This was a lot of fun. Um, 
we'll see where we go for next week's run it back we could do another draft we could get back to doing some games i mean if you have any suggestions definitely let us know on twitter but uh, we'll debate that over the next few days and be back at it next week Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.